Okay, so if we could, let's take our Bibles, turn real quick to Deuteronomy 12. I just want to show you the running start here. What we're going to be looking at today is going to be the violation of the theology of sacred spaces. And we find that mainly encapsulated in a phrase called the sin of Jeroboam. And it's important because of its repetitious nature throughout the Old Testament. And so, let's see here. Verse uh, 5, chapter 12, verse 5. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. And it goes on to speak a little bit. Go down to verse 10. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then... It shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings, which you will vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before Yahweh your Elohim, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite, who is within your gates, since he has no portion of inheritance with you. Uh, So notice, uh, let's see here, let's hit this too, 13 and 14. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. In other words, when you come into the land and God establishes that place, remember, they weren't to do this until they came into the land. Right now, their place of worship is, does anybody know where they're at before they cross over? No. Not right now in history. I'm talking about when we're reading this in Deuteronomy. The tabernacle. Remember, they would have to set it up. They'd have to tear it down. Have to move it in. So so right now, the tabernacle is the place of worship that he's designated, but it's a movable place. Well, what God is saying here is when you come in and you conquer the land, I'm going to establish a place to worship that is immovable. That it won't change. This is the place for you to be. And this is what makes the temple mount such a dire topic over in Jerusalem. It's the idea of God's temple being erected there and the fact that the Dome of the Rock stands on it. There's a lot of people that have proposed these theories of, well, you can still have the Dome of the Rock stand and you can actually place the temple next to it. I don't see it. I don't see how it could possibly happen. I think people are trying their best, but I also think that sometimes we try to human logic our theology into something that maybe the text just doesn't say. So that's a very interesting a very interesting point to think about of where he is set for his proposed place of designated worship. Um, so with that, look at verse 14. But in the place which Yahweh chooses, in one of your tribes, and we know that that tribe is later Judah, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Now I brought my maps today. <laughs> and so if you notice, I finally got it. Emily had to whittle down the sides and put it in this little frame here. It's really nice. I wanted to keep it keep it nice. But notice where Jerusalem is right there north of the tribe of Judah. And you see where all the tribes have settled in these different places. Now let me give you a good for instance uh, that we recapped uh, very early in Deuteronomy when they came in and they faced Sihon, the king of the Amorites. We dealt with that. 
so that was more in this area right here, just below the Arnon River. When they dealt with Og, king of Bashan, and they conquered, they conquered all the way from Aror, I think is how you say it, all the way up until Mount Hermon is what they conquered in that one thing, Og, the king of Bashan, this area. Well, he had all of that situation there, and they, they were able to capture all that land when they came in for the conquest. It was referred to earlier in Deuteronomy. So, so this gives you an idea. What this map is, is, is uh, my old church resurgence. We had a ton of college kids, ton of college kids that would come to church. And so because they've got all this extra money and they just don't know what in the world to do with it, they decided they're all going to jump to Israel for a little while. And so they went to Israel, went around, saw all these amazing sites and all this stuff. And, and uh, one girl actually met her future husband there. I got to do their wedding. That was really cool. And that's when the, 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 the uh, Messianic Jew guy came and played for it. It was a great time. The hopa that they put up in there that and wrapping the glass and crushing it with your foot. It was interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, if you've never been to a Jewish wedding, it's pretty neat stuff. Uh, so anyway, this is actually a current map that they got as tourists in order to, to go where Jesus walked. And so this is nice because you can see modern day what they've looked at and they try to label it with the first century New Testament historical items and then you compare that to the geography of an Old Testament influx of the 12 tribes of Israel. All of a sudden you got all kinds of area to work with how interesting that becomes. So, And if you ever want to look at this, they've got little inscriptions here, things, uh, quotes from the New Testament that they've put in in order to talk about different things that he had done. Um, it's a neat little artifact that I wanted to stick in a frame as well and just hold on to. So, uh, interesting stuff. Anyway, uh, so the whole idea is that there's going to be a place that is chosen to worship. And what in the world does that look like? So what we're going to do now is we are going to take our Bibles, turn to 1 Kings 12. And if you remember the dilemma that we dealt with in 1 Kings 12 was the whole idea of the kingdom being split... That was a problem. It was split because of Solomon's disobedience. He had married a lot of ladies, and those ladies had talked him into building these altars to all of these false gods, of which they were told not to do. Now, something else interesting that we're going to see later, that I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you now, because I'm terrible at keeping a secret. Um, but what I want to spoil for you now is, whenever a king came on deck in Israel, before they had the opportunity to assume the throne, in Deuteronomy 17, it is part of the law that they sit down and they hand copy the first five books of the Old Testament with a Levitical priest standing over their shoulder checking their work to make sure that they are copying it accurately. Why is that? Because the king had already been given a rule of governance. That was the law of God. That didn't change. He was simply one that was dispensing and administering the affairs of the Lord as the ultimate high king through this human king and still seeking to bless Israel in the same way. And one of the requirements is there, you shall have no other gods before me, correct? Wisest man in the world, out the window. So when he started building all these altars, and we saw in King Josiah's time that when there was a revival that happened with Judah, they tore down all those old altars and were able to start their worship fresh and have a revival of all the nation and all that stuff, which was which, which was excellent. Uh, but in doing that, we see how all that works together. Well, here's the inception of how all this comes down. Look at 1 Kings 12. Look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom 
will return to the house of David. And it's interesting. Notice how he labels the northern half of that. The kingdom will return to the house of David. Why? Because that was the designated place of worship, the temple. He's not talking about David's house, kingdom-wise. He's talking about the temple where God dwells, the Shekinah glory of God. Verse 24, If this people goes up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. Now, the worst advice you've ever gotten in your life, okay? Whoever you consulted, they need to be fired. And he said to them, Is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Behold, your gods, little g and plural. You know what that tells me? Demons are behind this. That's what it tells me. O Israel that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, I don't want to expound any more on the foolishness of this. I think you all get what's going on here. Verse 29. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now, let's think about it real quick here with our map. Here is, excuse me, Jerry, sorry. Here is Jerusalem. Everybody see that? Here's Bethel. Where's the dividing line between the two kingdoms? Right here. Everybody see that? So notice, don't even cross over and go the extra 30 miles or whatever it is to get to where the temple is. We're going to put one here at the southern boundary of our territory. We're going to put one here in the northern boundary of our territory. And regardless of where you are, you don't have to violate anything in order to get there. Just don't go back to God's house. This is the idea of a decision that is made off of logic and convenience and not obedience. This is a dangerous point. Does everybody see this now? Okay. Did everybody see the map okay? I know it's different. Maybe we should have it suspended up or something. Get some fishing wire or something. We could do that. Uh, verse 30. Now watch this. Now this thing became a what? Sin. Oh, man. If that's not marked in your Bible, mark it. That's what happened. This became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And in other words, the opposite direction of the house of the Lord. And it says here, and he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people. Hold on, stop. What's the problem with that? It had to be a Levite. No, we're just going to take from all the people. Doesn't matter who you are, where you came from. Doesn't matter what God chose. In fact, let's throw the whole book of Leviticus out because obviously that has no relevance here in this system. We're just going to choose you. If you smell nice, we're going to bring you in, right? Of course, they're worshiping the golden calves. Over. Exactly. They're worshiping the golden calf, so you're already off. Why not get pseudo-priests in there in order to complete the deal? Exactly. Notice one sin causes a trickle-down of many sins. It leads to a greater destruction. It says here, he made houses in high places, made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. Now, what's the problem with that? Replacing the feast that the Lord had instituted with ones that he instituted himself. You know what that tells me? He thinks he's God. Now that he's ruling over this province, he's just going to take the, the role of God in a situation. We'll have a feast when I say we're going to have a feast. And that's the done deal. How about the next part it says here? It says, and he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. There's the problem, in his own heart. 
And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. Now, that's that's a, a rough a rough way to go here. And this is what is known as the sin of Jeroboam. Um, it's important for us to understand that. Uh, here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some points that we're going to look at real quickly about how the sin of Jeroboam manifested itself and how everybody who participated in this worship other than the sacred space that God had designated ended up with some destruction. So let me give you this. Let's turn to 1 Kings 14. We're going to look at verse 16. I've got a whole lot of references here. This is not just an isolated sin. First Kings 14, just over a couple chapters. And let's look here. Um, let's look at verse 7, actually. Chapter 14, verse 7. Go, say to Jeroboam, thus says Yahweh Elohim of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. Yet you have not been like my servant David. Notice, God's the one who divided the kingdom. But just because he divided the kingdom doesn't mean that it negated Jeroboam's responsibility and how he handled the kingdom given to him. You see what I'm saying? The reason for the division was not Jeroboam's failure. But the failure is his personal failure of upholding what God had said. What it tells me is, is that Jeroboam needed to know the first five books of the Old Testament, and he didn't. So it says here, Yet you have not been like my servant David, and kept my commandments, and followed me with all his heart, uh, to do what was right in my sight. And you've also done more evil than all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods, and molten images, to provoke me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Now that's one of the reasons on your little note sheets that I gave you. If you turn it over on the back, you will see that you have a segment there with especially the first two commandments of the law given in Deuteronomy 5. Somebody read those first two verses on the back of your notes. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You should have no other gods before me. What's the next one? You shall not make for yourself an idol or or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Okay, now real quick, sometimes we would read that and we'd say, wait a second, the first commandment and the second commandment sound the same. And we dealt with this when we were when we were looking at that directly back in chapter 5. But pay attention to what it says. What's the first one say? Read it one more time. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay. It doesn't say anything about any idols or molten images, does it? No. That's commandment number 2. What does that mean that commandment 1 is referring to? Art. Not just that. What? Allegiance is an unbelief. No, allegiance is an unbelief. Yeah, kind of. But what, what do we talk about? We talk no other gods. Is it little g, plural? Mm -hmm. yes. What is that? Demons. 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 Notice, the very first commandment deals with staying away from demonic activity. It deals with the idea of not allowing another created, though supernatural, another created thing, supplant the role of the creator in our lives as the supreme object of worship. That's it. What are the second commandment molten images and idols? They're simply replicas of the problems of the first commandment. 
So we, it's important that we see that those are two separate things there. And what he's actually talking about, the first, is cultic worship or occultic worship. The idea of demonology. Stay away from that junk. Get rid of witchcraft. Oh, well, this is harmless. It's not. Stay away from it. Have nothing to do with it. So when we talk about that and we talk about him raising molten images, it's not just the fact that he had messed up the whole idea with commandment number one. He's now also violated commandment number two as a manifestation of violating commandment number one. Why do we they pick a calf? Because history is doomed to repeat itself. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it almost seems absurd, doesn't yeah. it? It's like, doesn't he not know? Has he never heard of Aaron and Aaron's issue here? Oh, you're right, he didn't read the first five books. <laughs> but I refuse to believe that he was ignorant of that yeah. historical situation. Yeah. I mean... That, that was the interesting thing is, is is with the first five books there, they would have had it written down. But when you were growing up in those situations, oral tradition was a big deal in Jewish cultures. So this whole idea of them, them passing this on at this time, uh, it almost seems unfounded that they would have not known about this. I mean, it's just insane to me. So, yeah, I don't know. It is it is pretty captivating. I'm going, well, how could he be so dumb, you know? But I'll, I'll, let's also be very careful. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We often pick on Peter. I wonder what we would have been like if we were in Peter's shoes and, you know, hanging around Jesus. Probably that time. worse. I, 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 I know that I would have been. Especially if, if Tom would have been known, one of the other apostles. They might have known it. They might have just been rebelling. Yeah. It's a simple rebellion against God. I'm going to yeah. do it anyways, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what it, it seems seems to be like. That is, he is just almost mocking God. He says, "Hey, you set me up. I'm going to rule it my way." Exactly. And here's another thing: is God would not hold Jeroboam responsible for responding well to the responsibility given into his hands if he was ignorant of that occasion. Does that make sense? And he didn't know that he should be ruling in the same attitude and manner as David did chasing after God's heart, constantly wanting to reverence him in all things, God would have not held him responsible like he does in the situation. He wouldn't have said those types of things. God recognizes the ignorance of people, and he's compassionate upon it. So let's not think, you know, well, he just should have kind of known through osmosis of the culture or something like that. There's no way that that could have trickled down like that. He obviously knew something and was in complete rebellion. So he says, verse 10, Therefore, behold, I am bring, or sorry, let's finish nine because it's interesting. Molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. That's interesting. That shows responsibility and neglect. Everybody see that? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Verse 10 Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make a clean, a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it's all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. For Yahweh has spoken it. Sounds like God takes this pretty seriously. You see what I'm saying? Yes, we love good, cushy, hallmark, fluffy God. We love him. But he's also a God of justice. He's also a God with righteous standards. And he's not to be trifled with. He says here, verse 12, Now you, arise, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child will die. 
All Israel, and you'd have to read the rest of the context to see all that. Don't worry about it right now. All Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he alone of Jeroboam's family will come to the grave, because in him something good was found towards Yahweh Elohim of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, Yahweh will raise up for himself a king over Israel who will cut off the house of Jeroboam this day and from now on. For Yahweh will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he will uproot Israel from the good land which he gave to their fathers, and will scatter them beyond the Euphrates River, because they have made their ashram, remember those, those were those cultic worship poles that they had, provoking Yahweh to anger. He will give up Israel on account. And remember, Israel's not talking about the totality. It's talking about the northern kingdom, okay? He will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam. There's the first mention of that phrase in Scripture. And it's important to see because we're going to see it repeatedly. On account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed and with which he made Israel to sin. Notice, a leader speaks for a nation. And when he sets up false gods and he's worshiping in that direction and he is setting up an entire regime of people that are going to follow in a false direction, you have essentially doomed the people who are under you. It's a good lesson to learn. How about chapter 15, verse 30? One chapter over. You see here. <clears throat> and and again, we're going to start in verse 25 to get some context going on here. So 1 Kings 15, verse 25. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. Notice they're paralleling the kings and the kingdoms against one another to find out where you are time-wise. In fact, it's interesting. What you find is that Asa lasts for a really long time. There's something going on in the southern kingdom where they were more devoted to the Lord. A lot of it had to be the fact that they had the temple on their land at that time, but they stayed more faithful to the Lord than the southern kingdom did. The southern kingdom was off the tracks quickly. It said, he reigned over Israel two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. There's one thing that you want to mark always. When a king does evil in sight of the Lord, in the sight of the Lord, God deals with that king. It says here, And he walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Leader speaking for a nation. Then Basha, the son of Abijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to Gabbethon. So Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Not in Asa's place, in Nadab's place. It came about, as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. Isn't that what God said was going to happen in chapter 14? Exactly like God said was going to happen. He did not leave to Jeroboam any person alive until he had destroyed them, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. And because of the, mark it well guys, sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, and which he made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he provoked Yahweh Elohim of Israel to anger. Now the rest of his acts of Nahab and all that he did, they're written in the book of Chronicles. There's another instance where this takes place. How about chapter 16, verse 31? Take a look over at that. We'll start in 29. It says, Now Ahab... The son of Omri became king over Israel, the northern kingdom, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Man, Asa must have been doing something right, right? We saw him in two years. We saw him in three years. Now we see him in 38 years of rule. This is some good stuff. 
It says here, Asa, king of Judah, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel. We know that name, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, that's like if some of you moms don't approve of who your son marries, you call her Jezebel, it's a bad thing. That's a joke, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Uh, The daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. Now, for the fact that she's the daughter of a guy named Eth, Bale, B-A-A-L, you ought to automatically know that that family's trouble, okay? That's Hatfields and McCoys right here. Of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So notice it's just a downfall. It's just a pit after that. Now to go over to 2 Kings. Travel over to 2 Kings. We're going to look at chapter 3. Second Kings three. Let's look at verse. Let's see here. We're going to start here. Let's just start in verse one. Now Jehoram, the king of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned twelve years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal which his father had made. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder what little bout of conviction got a hold of him. (laughs) Nevertheless, verse 3, watch this, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Notice, generational, ongoing sin, violating the theology of sacred space. How about chapter 10? Turn over to chapter 10, verse 29. I hope this isn't boring for you guys, but what I want to show you guys is a continuity in the Word of God that's going on here. 2 Kings 10. The situation of Jehu. Man, the, the story of Jehu is an excellent story to read. Uh, if you want a really good, uh, a really good account uh, going on of Somebody finally rising up and standing for righteousness. Jehu was a good one. Um, Let's see here. Man, there's a lot of good stuff here. Verse 24. uh, 2 Kings 10, verse 24. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed uh, for himself 80 men outside, and he said, The one who permits any of the men whom I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. Then it came about, I mean, he was reforming the house with violence. It was interesting. Then it came about, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the royal officers, Go in, kill them, let none come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the royal officers threw them out, and he went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the sacred pillars from the house of Baal and burned them. And they also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and broke down the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. (laughs) Just to go to show you what they thought of false gods in Jehu's reign. This Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, there it is again, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. From these Jehu did not depart, even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan. Now here's what's interesting about that, guys. Was Jehu's heart right? His heart was right in the entire situation. 
But what this kind of tells me or what this makes me think of is because they had just done it that way for so long. That's just what you did in the northern kingdom. And so he followed in that same trickling line of this is just what we do. Probably not knowing as readily, of course, as Jeroboam did that he was causing all of Israel's sin by continuing in this sinful pattern. That's one of the most amazing things about Christians having the opportunity in this age is to recognize where ongoing sin has been accepted and to say, no, we're not going to continue to do that. God's word says we should not do it that way. However this junk got started, it shouldn't happen. This is what what makes me think about whenever Catholics come out of the Catholic Church because they become genuine believers in Jesus Christ. And usually how Catholics get evangelized is by reading the Bible for themselves. They've been told for so long that only a priest or a father can read the Bible for them. Don't worry about it, what it says. They'll make sure and tell you what you need to do and where you need to go and how you need to bow and how many Hail Marys you need to do, what to show up for, and make sure you're praying that rosary and coming to confession, get married in the church, la, 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 all this stuff, putting people under a pseudo-law. And what you find is a lot of times when Catholics get a hold of the Scriptures and they just start reading for themselves. They realize, okay, wait a second, what I'm doing and what I'm reading are not together, and yet that church is telling me they're together. They're not together. They're not at all. So, interesting point to think about. If you've ever come out of Catholicism, you know people that have dealt with Catholicism. It's a very interesting thing to find a faithful Catholic who also totally believes that the Bible is inerrant. If you've got that, you've got the most ultimate of contradictions that you've ever found. Yes, a complete denial of sola scriptura. And the reason is, is because the Catholic Church teaches that where scripture and the church are in contradiction, the church wins. It's very interesting. So there's a, there's a lot of mess ups there. You know, a lot of violation of the word of God. But that would be a definite example of a perpetuation of a sin that when the word of God comes to light, it's broken away from. So if you got some Catholic friends, just encourage them to read the word. You know, we're so worried about mustering up all this courage to share the gospel. Just say, hey, let's read the Bible together. Let's see what that says. You don't even have to teach them nothing. Just read together and see what happens. What do you think about that? You know, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. What do you think about that? You know, good stories. Anyway, moving on. Notice what happens. Verse 30. The Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, Your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful. Notice that. Doing the right things? Yeah. Carefully tending to it? No. In other words, he got generalities in line. He was letting the details slip. Not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. Another instance of it. Let's look at a couple of more here, and, and I can give you guys the rest of the references if you want them. Uh, chapter 13. Look over at chapter 13, starting in verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaz, Ahaziah, king of Judah, 
Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel at Samaria. So we're still talking about the northern kingdom, and he reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of ne- uh, the son of Nebat, notice there it is again, with which he made Israel sin, and he did not turn from them. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Aram, and into the hand of Benadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz entered, entreated the favor of the, of, of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. And he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. Now, isn't that interesting? He's perpetuating the sins of Jeroboam. He's got the country in sin. God rises up other countries in order to come in, other kingdoms to come in, and discipline those people to get their attention, and he got one of them. And so now Jehoahaz turns around and he and he uh, he forgive me he turns around and he entreats the Lord is that how they labeled it yeah Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord and the Lord did what he listened to him if you simply call out to the Lord in your situation he responds notice that that one act of turning to the Lord automatically overcame this huge boundary of unfaithfulness that had been perpetuated, and now he's got God's ear. Verse 5, Yahweh gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Arameans, and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. Nevertheless, now was that an act of God's grace? It was. Watch this. Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, with which they made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah, remember those are the cultic poles, also remained standing in Samaria. For he left Jehoahaz of the army not more than fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen, for the king of Aram had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son became king in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, uh, Jehoash, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, did I say that right earlier? <laughs> Jehoash. You get your Joash and your Jehoash all messed up, okay? So, notice it says, the son of Jehoahaz became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but he walked in them. They are not. They cannot be. One is over one is over Samaria. The other one's over Judah. They're still dealing with the division of northern and southern kingdom. We'll have have to research it and see. Last one. Let's look at this last one here. Let's see here. 1311. 1424. Let's start in verse 17. 2 Corinthians. Sorry, 2 Corinthians. We only wish we were in the New Testament. 2 Kings chapter 14. Look at verse 17. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, and are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? They conspired against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there. 
Then they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. All the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. Now notice, this is another Jeroboam, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all that the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant uh, Jonah, forgive me, the son of the Amittai, the prophet, uh, who is the Gath, who is of Gath Heifer. Okay, so what do you get this idea? Why does it bring that up at the end? Because notice it wasn't that these kings were ignorant of good things that needed to be done. He actually restored a border that the Lord commanded him to do. But yet they couldn't get away from the sin. They couldn't notify, they couldn't recognize this continual sin. Look over at 15.8. We'll finish here with this passage. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. As his fathers had done, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he had made Israel sin. Over and over and over and over and over again. In fact, if I recall correctly, 15, let me see here, 15.9, it's brought up again in 15.18, it's brought up again in 15.24, it's brought up again in 15.28, it's brought up a, a final time in 17.22. There are 14 mentions of this sin and violating the theology of sacred spaces. There's also a couple of mentions. Um, let me see here. Second Kings thirteen six. Just look at it real quick. Is that the one we looked at? Yeah, the sins of the house of Jeroboam. Sometimes it's mentioned like that. The sins of Jeroboam. The sins of the house of Jeroboam. So this was a sin that was continual throughout. When God set up this theology of sacred spaces, He was serious. You come in. You conquer the land, you act as my tool of judgment against them, you discipline them and you throw them out of the land, you set up your society, and then I will designate for you a place to come and worship. And everybody comes and worships at this place. And when they got away from that, you find nothing but serious trouble for the northern kingdom. In fact, we've talked about this before. The northern kingdom, which was made up of ten of the tribes, was taken out by the Assyrians, we talked a little bit about them today, was taken out by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Judah lasted until 586 B.C. So there's about a good little 130, 140 years more of time that they had in the southern kingdom than the northern kingdom had in their situation. The northern kingdom strayed so quickly. And this was the sin that was pretty much the catalyst for all of it. So any thoughts about that? It's an interesting little study. The northern, the northern tribe never had a godly king, only the southern one. Yeah. Yeah, they never had an actual godly king. Yeah, they never did. They had, they had, they had kings that did some things that God approved of, and like we saw, the one king called out to the Lord. The Lord answered, delivered him. You know, it's very interesting if you've ever called out to the Lord and He delivers you. And sometimes we find ourselves back in that kind of funky stage where we feel kind of complacent or whatever. 
think back on those things. Think back on what the Lord did to deliver you before because that's what starts to get us out of that lethargic existence and serving Him and kind of like, oh, good grief, God, does it all matter? The world's so terrible, blah, 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 all that stuff. So it's easy to get in that because Satan is always against God's people. He wants us in that malaise constantly. So My study last week with Mike was on Ahab and Ahab... God had mercy on Ahab, who was terrible. You know, mm-hmm. But he showed mercy on Ahab because Ahab basically sackcloth and ashes and repented there. So, I mean, God, he actually showed Ahab mercy. Yeah. So there's God's mercy in the Old Testament. Yep. I, I compared that, too, with Cain because he murdered his brother, and but God put a mark on Cain so nobody would kill him. You know, yeah. I mean, there's God's mercy for Cain too. Yeah. And that's one reason why I don't like calling the current dispensation that we're in the dispensation of grace. There's a lot of people do, and I don't want to fault them for that. But when I read from Genesis to Revelation, I find grace all through the Especially Old Testament. Like Aaron when he threw the, the party, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I like how you call it that. It's almost like you were there. You know yeah. when he threw that party? Yeah. And there's the instance of a golden calf there. Only There was only one. But you know, yeah. So there was repetition there. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So, All right. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Thank you all for... I hope you weren't suffering through that. I hope it was good. <laughs> Father, thank you that you've been very clear in your word. And Lord, it's important for us uh, not to just be tending to the generalities, but also to be concerned with the details. And you see over and over that your concern is for the heart. Does the heart chase after you? Do we have a heart like David who desires to serve you and to love you? The Father desires to uphold righteousness over sin and to do exactly what your word has called to do. That's really the issue here is that basic disobedience. Uh, Thank you, Father, for being merciful to us. And showing us your mercy all throughout the Old Testament. Please bless our weeks and help us to reflect upon these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone.